Hello, everyone, and welcome to the AWS Podcast. Simon Leisha here in Melbourne, Australia. Great to have you back, and thanks very much for listening. So it's an update show today. Lots of different things to share with you, so I'm going to take you on a bit of a tour of some of the highlights. Now, of course, just remember that on the podcast, we don't necessarily cover every single update because there are just so many, so you can always track them down on the What's New part of the website. However, I try and pull out highlights that I think would really uh, appeal to a large set of listeners. So let's start with... AWS CloudFormation support for Amazon DynamoDB Accelerator, or DAX. Now, we've talked about DAX in the past. Just to remind you, um, DAX is a fully managed, highly available in-memory cache for DynamoDB. Now, this is really useful in a lot of use cases because it delivers up to a 10x performance improvement. So really, if you want to think about it, we're moving from milliseconds to microseconds, even when you're talking about millions of requests per second. So a really common design pattern we see is uh, type uh, workloads where there's a lot of querying taking place, a lot of read things. Our package tracking is probably one of the sort of canonical examples of this. Um, DAX fits that really well. With CloudFormation templates, you can now create, update, and delete your DAX clusters, parameter groups, and subnet groups as well. So great new support there to take advantage of. Another new thing for DynamoDB is VPC endpoints for DynamoDB. So many of our customers use VPCs, virtual private clouds, and they also use DynamoDB. And now you can create a VPC endpoint for DynamoDB. Now, what this means is that instead of any of your instances that or software that needed to access DynamoDB hitting a public endpoint, so in general you had to have an internet gateway or some sort of proxy NAT gateway approach, um, you don't need to do that anymore. Now you can connect them directly into a VPC-hosted endpoint that is private and not available to anyone else. Now, this is a free capability. It's simply a configuration option either through the CLI, the API, or the GUI. Very simple to walk through, link in the show notes of how to do it, and you can have VPC endpoints for DynamoDB, which is available in all public regions. So while we're talking data, let's talk more traditional database types, relational databases, and in particular, the Amazon RDS for SQL Server database. So I'm a big fan of RDS because it makes managing a database so much easier. And what is great and is new for our customers is that when you're creating an Amazon RDS for SQL Server database, you can now create them with up to 16 terabytes of storage, which is up from four terabytes. So a larger number of databases can fit in this construct really well. Now, you can use this new limit when using provisioned IOPS or general purpose SSD storage types. So you can choose the flavor of storage you want. Also, the range of IOPS storage ratio, so this is the number of IOPS to gig, have been increased from 10 to 1 to 50 to 1. So you can drive more workload through as well. So this is a really useful update for those people who use um, SQL Server uh, in anger, as you might want to say. You could fit much, much larger database sizes there now, up to 16 terabytes. However, if for some reason the RDS construct doesn't work for you and you want to just roll your own, you can. And uh, there's actually a new AWS quick start in this space, which is SQL Server on AWS using always-on availability groups and Windows Server failover clustering. So if you want to use some of the native tooling, there's now a quick start which allows you to simply deploy using CloudFormation a pre-configured best practice example of how to deploy this construct. There's a great uh, architecture diagram. It does all the auto-scaling groups for you, does the replica for you, uses AWS directory service. It's a really nifty starting point. And that's the thing with the quick starts. We've talked about them before on the podcast is they represent a starting point that you can build upon and grow from. So rather than going from sort of a blank screen and having to build your own cloud formation template to your own design, you can take this quick start design and tweak it, change it, update it as much as you want. 
Um, there are lots of configuration options, so you can configure SQL Server, Active Directory, the WSFC cluster. Um, you can change the SQL Server version, the licensing type, tenancy options, and you can have two different Active Directory implementations as well. So lots and lots of choice there for you to have a play with if you are interested in that. Keeping on the Microsoft theme, but more with a developer flavor, uh, the AWS tools for Microsoft Visual Studio Team Services has been released. Now, that's a mouthful, isn't it? So uh, VSTS for short. Um, these are free tools that are available to you, and they're available in the Visual Studio Marketplace. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can find them. And these uh, tools and tasks allow you to include specialized Amazon-focused componentry or tasks in your pipeline um, as part of VSTS. So for example, you can copy content to and from Amazon S3 buckets, or you could kick off uh, an Elastic Beanstalk deploy or a code deploy, etc. Um, all these tools are also open source and can be found on GitHub, which means, again, you can turn them to your own use. Um, lots and lots of different examples, but I'll give you an example of what the initial release contains. So you can do uh, AWS CloudFormation create and update stack. Uh, you can delete stacks. You can execute a change set. You can deploy to Elastic Beanstalk. Uh, you can do a Lambda.net core deployment. You can invoke a Lambda function, which is pretty nifty. Uh, you can do an S3 download and S3 upload. So that's useful for all manner of things. Uh, you can also run scripts that use commandlets for the tools for Windows PowerShell, so the AWS PowerShell module. Um, and you can also hook into the AWS CLI as well. So lots of flexibility and options in terms of automation. And remember, when you're doing development, automation really is king. That's where you get value from. You want to make sure you're not manually configuring things, but you're taking advantage of things from an automated perspective as much as possible. This is a great capability if you are a user of this type of technology. Many, many customers we have use email to communicate with their subscribers, user base, etc. Um, some emails are transactional, some are marketing related, but email still is a very common method of communication. So we have lots and lots of customers who really like to use the Amazon Simple Email Service, which makes it easy to send emails at scale. Now, one of the really important parts of using Amazon SES is the reputation management. As with sending any large amount of email, you don't want to be interpreted as spam or some sort of unwelcome type of email. We all battle with that ourselves in our own local inboxes, so we kind of need to be conscious of that when we're sending them out as well. So the uh, Amazon SES now has a reputation dashboard. Now, what this does is let you see the overall bounce and complaint rates for your account. So this means you can start to tweak what you're doing to avoid those damaging reputational impacts. Because obviously, if you have a lower reputation, then your ability to send email gets reduced. So you want to make sure you're across your reputation. So now that's completely visible to you, which is a really handy capability. And speaking of visibility, uh, we announced uh, last month that AWS CloudTrail event history is now available to all customers. So this lets you view, search, and download all your recent AWS account activity. And you can see what's been happening in your account, whether it's through the AWS Management Console, the SDKs, and the CLIs. This is really useful for governance, compliance, and risk auditing. Now, in the past, you could only view this account activity if you'd set up CloudTrail for your account. Now you can automatically view the past seven days of CloudTrail event history immediately through the AWS CloudTrail Console without setting it up. Now, you can still do what you did before, which is set up CloudTrail to deliver your events to Amazon S3. You can set up CloudWatch logs and CloudWatch events. So you should do all of these kinds of things. Um, however, now we've set it up so that by default, 
It's on for seven days of history. And this is available in all AWS public regions, the AWS GovCloud US and China Beijing as well. Many of our listeners and customers feel the need, the need for speed, as they say, when it comes to running their code, particularly if they're doing rendering, 3D workloads, 3D visualizations, graphic intensive remote workstations, video encoding, all that good stuff. So the Amazon EC2 G3 instance type is of great interest to them. Uh, This is the latest generation of our accelerated compute instances. And it means you can combine GPU, CPU, and a truckload of RAM. Uh, They pack NVIDIA Tesla M60 GPUs. And when you compare this generation, this G3 generation, to the previous most powerful generation, it's double the CPU power per GPU, double the host memory per GPU. So it is really, really cool. And these instance types are now available in the Asia-Pacific Japan region, Asia-Pacific Sydney region, Asia-Pacific Singapore region, and EU Frankfurt regions. So this joins their availability in the Ohio, North Virginia, Oregon, North California, GovCloud, and EU Ireland regions as well. So if you feel the need for speed, you can uh, use them straight away. And if the mention of graphics processing and rendering sort of made you prick your ears up, then the next announcement will be interesting to you as well. So we've released something called Deadline 10, which allows you to launch a rendering fleet in AWS. Uh, this is uh, built on technology that we brought on board with the acquisition of Thinkbox software. So this is designed to extend your on-premises rendering into the AWS cloud. So it gives you elasticity and flexibility, but it's easy to use. And it's designed for those embarrassingly parallel render tasks. Now, what it does is uses uh, EC2 spot instances to give you enough low-cost compute capacity to let you just go bananas in terms of how fast you process with a really simple, effective, and useful workflow to do this in terms of your overall rendering uh, expertise. It also has a really interesting capability where it allows you to integrate uh, lots of other popular popular applications like Deadline for Autodesk, 3ds Max, Maya, Arnold, and dozens more. These are all in the Thinkbox marketplace. You can also purchase software licenses from the marketplace, use your existing licenses, or use them together. So if you're into rendering fleets, this is something you probably want to take a closer look at. So some of those announcements were pretty significant, but uh, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know I do like the what I call small but perfectly formed changes that the service teams provide for our customers to allow them to do more and uh, meet different compliance requirements, etc. So let me run through a few of those little goodies. Amazon Route 53 now supports CAA records. These are certification authority authorization record sets. This allows you to specify the certificate authorities that can issue certificates for your domains and subdomains. This is a compliance requirement for the certification authority and browser forum to make sure that they can check for the presence of these records before they issue a certificate for a domain. So they are now there. Another nice change is for Amazon Elastic File System, or EFS, uh, now supports additional permissions for finer grain control of directory and file access. So we now support the use of set GID and sticky bit special permissions on directories as well. So you can have far more customization of the access permissions you use for your shared directories as well. Um, we also now support the running of binary files that are configured as execute only. So this is useful when you want to Correct permissions to allow you to execute these types of files, but they should not be read or written as well. Um, these are available on all new and existing file systems at no additional cost in all Amazon EFS regions as well. Now, a less smaller update is the modularized AWS SDK for Ruby version three. 
And the team has announced a stable release of version 3, and this SDK is now available with over 100 service-specific gems. They all start with AWS-SDK-Aster. So for example, if using S3, it would be AWS-SDK-S3. They're all available on Ruby Gems, and you can get a full list of all these also on the GitHub landing page, links in the show notes. And what this does is modularizes the monolithic SDK into those service-specific gems. Uh, this makes it easier to deploy, easier to make changes, etc. We also now use strict semantic versioning. Uh, so this means we can now have continuous delivery of these and you can pick and choose which of the gems your application or library needs. And you can also update the service gems independently of each other as well. Uh, the, they also use statically generated code rather than runtime generated clients and types. So it makes it a lot more easy to read stack traces and code for the API clients as well. It also gets rid of many of the thread safety issues as well because it doesn't have autoload statements anymore. So you've got lots and lots of power in there. Also, uh, AWS Signature version 4 signing functionality is available as a separate gem. AWS-SIGV4 is what you want. And this is really useful if you want to sign your own requests, but also requests uh, that are AWS related as well. So lots of changes in Ruby land if you're a Rubyist. The Amazon EC2 Systems Manager team has also been hard at work and made a few nifty little changes here. You can now have configuration compliance reporting and auto remediation. So now you can view the configuration compliance information for instances based on the state that you've set in a state manager document and association. So for example, you could test whether a particular set of firewall settings are in place and then run a report to make sure that all the instances are in compliance with that. You can now also take action. So you can order or mediate instances based on compliance reports. So if an instance is out of compliance, you can trigger an Amazon CloudWatch event rule to bring them into compliance. So this is really exciting from a compliance perspective because you're creating kind of a closed loop system where you're not just auditing and detecting problems, you're able to automatically resolve those problems. So you're never really drifting out of compliance, you're always nudging things back into compliance should things go wrong. Plus, you're getting reports as to where those compliance fails were taking place so you can actually solve the problem at its source, which is really important in terms of optimizing what you're doing. And finally for today, Amazon Redshift has SQL Scalar User-Defined Functions or UDFs. So this is one of these ones that if you know what a UDF is, your ears will prick up. And if you don't know what a UDF is, you'll say, oh, I wonder what a UDF is. So now you can create these user-defined functions uh, in Postgres SQL syntax. And the nice thing is these will run in parallel across your clusters. Now, for faster performance, what they've done is replaced the SQL function name with the SQL function code on the leader node. And then these are run as regular SQL in parallel on each node of your cluster. So once defined, you can call any scalar UDF in any SQL statement. This drives a lot more power, a lot more flexibility, and a lot more customizability for what you're doing from a, from a uh, query perspective. So if you're doing anything in a serious sort of data warehouse context, this will be of great interest to you. Um, they don't cost any more, and they're also now available in all regions that Amazon Redshift is available to you. So that's a little tour through some of the changes that have been taking place. I hope there was something in there for you. As ever, we love to get your feedback. AWS podcast at amazon.com. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, keep on building.